0: Welcome to another episode of Talking Kotlin, everyone. My name is still Seb, and I'm still here with my co-host Hadi.
1: Yeah, you still haven't kicked me off yet, right? You keep you keep trying. You keep trying to get rid of me. How's the weather, Seb? Keep trying and keep failing. Uh it's pretty decent. I hope it'll hold
0: out for my for my next vacation, which I'm taking in uh, just two days. So, so you're going yeah. from
1: your living room to your like to your bedroom? Yeah, to the, the to, to the veranda. Just yeah, just okay. catching
0: some some sunlight, hopefully. Nice.
1: Nice. Yeah, it's, it's kind of sunny out here right now, but again, you know, me with my blinds down and having yeah. to have lighting and all of that stuff because, well, we're here, we're talking Kotlin, right? And today, we're going to be talking Kotlin with two awesome individuals who are Jeffrey and Matts from Google. And we're going to be talking about contributing to the compiler and many other things. So let's welcome our guests.
2: Well, yeah, so I'm Jeffrey Van Gogh, an engineering manager on Android Studio, and I'm mainly charged for Android's programming languages.
3: And my name is Mazeia. I'm a software engineer at Google. I'm on Jeffrey's team. Uh, I'm the tech lead for some of the compiler stuff that we do. Uh, so we're building uh, the D8 DEXer that turns Java class files into Dex files. The R8 Shrinker, which makes Android apps smaller, and most importantly for this podcast, we're working on the Kotlin compiler. Wow. Uh,
0: yeah, it's it's really good to have both of you uh, on the show. Um, and I and I probably just want to start you off with with a bit of an open ended question um and yeah you can you can just see see where where that takes us you you say you're you're contributing to the kotlin compiler what would you say does that entail like what kind of scope is
3: that so the 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 main two things that we're working on uh, are the the new compiler backend uh, that is coming for the kotlin jvm uh, backend uh, we're about to turn it on as the staple for the 1.5 release uh, and we're also uh, working on the new frontend because build speed is a very important issue for uh, all people using a compiler, uh, and definitely also for Kotlin. Uh, we have some other projects as well. Maybe we should uh, sh- should wait a little bit with uh, with those, and, uh, and and I'll be happy to dive more into why we're contributing to both the new frontend and the new backend. Um, so if we, if we start out with the uh, with the backend, so um, so Mads, before
1: before we kind of like go further, because I know that some people have maybe listened to some previous podcasts uh, of mine, which apart from my mother, of course. <laughs> uh, and uh, for folks not familiar with the concept, what is the front end and what is the backend? Because I'm thinking people are saying like Kato server and uh, okay, no JavaScript.
3: Sure, sounds good, Hardy. So, so, uh, so, so, typically a compiler is split into two, to two parts: a front end and a back end. The front end is the is the part that takes your input source and figures out if it's actually a valid Kotlin program. Um, so it will do a syntax uh, analysis. It will figure out if it even makes sense according to the grammar of the language, um, and uh, and then it will start analyzing whether the um, Uh, What you typed in, uh, now you know that it's syntactically valid, but is it also sort of semantically valid? So do the types make sense? Um, And for the Kotlin compiler, that involves stuff like uh, resolution, finding out for any symbol what it refers to. It uh, involves type checking, uh, figuring out if uh, if all of the types make sense, and if you expect a string to flow somewhere that nothing else uh, flows there, that you don't get a hash table uh, flowing in instead. Um, and since Kotlin does not have explicit type annotations on everything, it also involves like type inference. Um, and then, so basically, the front end is what figure, figures out: is this even a valid Kotlin program? If it isn't, it needs to reject the program. If it is, it passes it on to the backend and the backend then needs to take what it now knows is a valid program uh, and generate the output. Uh, So in terms of Kotlin, if you're using Kotlin JVM, that's generating class files that can be run on a Java virtual machine. If you're using uh, Kotlin for JavaScript, it will generate JavaScript code. Uh, And if you're using a native, it will generate native code.
0: Is it correct that you folks are working mostly on the on the JVM backend,
3: then? Right. Yes, that's correct. So, so for the backend work, it's on the it, it's mostly on the, the the JVM backend. So the the uh, if we if we dive into the backend a little bit more, uh, the the main reason for Google getting involved in that uh, was basically Jetpack Compose. So, of course, we want the compiler to move forward since we're heavily invested in Kotlin and we have a lot of happy Android developers using the Kotlin language for their Android apps. But we also uh, had this project called Jetpack Compose, which is a new UI uh, toolkit for Android uh, that just went beta uh, last week or two weeks ago. Um, And one of the things that Jetpack Compose does is uh, it has a compiler plugin and you write your code uh, so that it looks very nice and easy. Um, so you just like, write a linear layout, and then you have like a Lambda, which has uh, children, like uh, X images, and then you build up your, your UI uh, with something that just looks like a lot of function calls. Um, and then you have an annotation that's called add composable. Um, and that one is where, where the magic happens because then the compose team has a compiler plugin that rewrites all of your composable functions so that at runtime, you will not always sort of compose your full uh, UI. you will only uh, recompose the things that changed. I'm not an expert on compose. so if any of that is wrong, I, I, I really apologize, but that's my understanding of it after in uh, anyway. Um, and um, the, the, the current backend um, uh, JVM backend um, was not very easy uh, to deal with in terms of some of these rewritings. So that's where the new IR uh, intermediate representation in the compiler uh, is very useful for us. So actually, Compose never used the current backend. It always used the, at that time, uh, very young, a new backend based on this new intermediate representation. And the bottom line is that that intermediate representation is a lot easier to rewrite than the structure in the current backend. Um, And that's why we we were really interested in this, because we could see that that, uh, supporting Jetpack Compose in the current backend would be hard. It It would just be difficult and it would be a lot easier if we could just do it in the new one um, at the same time, if we didn't engage and involve and try to help, uh, if we were sort of a little uncertain if our timelines would end up uh, matching. Um, so what, what we're trying to uh, to do there and, and what I, I think we succeeded in is helping uh, accelerate the development of the uh, JVM version of the IR backend so that it's now basically ready to go stable in one five, which fits very well with Compose having just gone uh, gone beta, so that we're ready to have a Compose version ship uh, at at some point that uh, that is based on what is the default compiler backend for the JVM compiler backend.
0: So, just as a as a small follow up, so that I understand this correctly, you're saying that the the compiler plugin that you folks are building. Uh, it it doesn't really touch your Kotlin code in any way. It just touches this intermediate representation and can figure out based on that um, what what type of uh, like what the intent of the user was uh, when they described, for example, their user interfaces um, in in this compose DSL.
3: Yep, exactly. So it it looks at the uh, it hooks into the compiler, gets a hold of this intermediate representation. It actually hooks in in multiple places, but one of the places it hooks in is in the backend. And then it finds everything that's annotated with this uh, specific annotation. And then it knows what to do from there on. And what it needs to do is actually rewrite the code. Uh, and it does that using this intermediate representation. The, the, the things that uh, are complicated is that it needs to like add more parameters, deal with having things having the right type um, and the current backend is based on sort of a, a pair of a pure source view of your program and then semantic information on the side about types and, and all of that recorded by the front end. That means that it's, it's a little hard to rewrite this because you need to rewrite basically source. I like generate new source, and then you need to also update the separate structure on the side, and that's complicated. Uh, The new infrastructure is a lot easier because you basically have um, something very much like an abstract syntax tree that is then annotated with the type information. And it's much easier to just say, oh, let me add a new parameter over here, and it has this type. Uh, So it's it's much easier to deal with in the the new representation than in the old one. So
1: it's, it's no secret that the compiler plugin wasn't very easy to work with. Uh, in the past. Have you found that improved? And the stability of it?
3: Writing the plugin with a new infrastructure has been significantly easier. I think the the sort of inherent complexity in leaking out your internal compiler uh, infrastructure, um, it's one of the things that, to be honest, we've actually resisted in some of our own compilers. And um, so uh, if we talk about like the D8-dexer or the RH-shrinker, we've had requests for like, could you uh, m- make this a-, a compiler suite where people can write plugins? And so far we've resisted because uh, it-, it-, it does get complicated. Um, and it does so for the Kotlin compiler as well. Uh, Jetpack Compose have been doing this very early with the new IR structures. And of course, while it's still early days for a compiler backend, you change the intermediate representation frequently, often, and for good reason. But that means that if you have these plugins that also look at it, they don't live in your own repo, then of course you're breaking those plugins. And, uh, and realistically, that will continue to happen, hopefully uh, a lot less... Uh, now that we're getting ready to go stable with the uh, with, with the new IR backend, but it probably will happen. Uh, after all, we are hooking into the guts of the compiler, and if something needs to change or needs to be extended, well, then it kind of has to. Uh, and that means that that will break compiler plugins. So, so yeah, it is hard to work with Hadi. I think it's still relatively hard to work with because. Uh, we do not have any sort of strict contract that the uh, that the intermediate representation cannot uh, in any way change, uh, and I don't think we should do that because that would um, that would make it very hard to make progress on the Kotlin compiler and the Kotlin language. Right? I mean, if you introduce something new in the language, sometimes that's easiest to do if you are also allowed to uh, to like add something to your intermediate representation. Uh, uh, so so that means that uh, that plugins will see something new. So I think it will be um, uh, we will continue to be able to to have to do changes in the JPEG compose compiler plugins as the compiler evolves. And I think that's sort of just the name of the game.
0: In, in your explanation of, of this part, you actually mentioned that that you you folks are also maintaining a bunch of other, well, compilers, I guess. Do you want to kind of expand a little bit on this? Because, for example, I, I didn't know that if I if I run my my Android application that it's gonna run through well what are essentially multiple compilers. And more importantly than that, I would actually be interested in kind of uh, knowing: Do you have any lessons learned from from these other compilers that you're now kind of bringing in to uh, working on the Kotlin compiler?
3: Let's let's start out with the basics. So, so the the other uh, compilers that I mentioned were uh, D8, which is a dexer. So, uh, Android development mainly happens in languages that target the JVM. Or in like C, C++, uh, to ship some uh, some native code uh, on your devices as well. For anything that's written in a language that can target the JVM, you end up with Java class files. So there can be Kotlin and Java, which are sort of the supported ones. But you could use a bunch of other things, like you use uh, Scala to generate uh, class files if you wanted to, um, or any other language that ends up generating class files that can run on on a uh, on, on, on in the Java ecosystem. Um, however, uh, Android phones do not run class files. Uh, they have their own format, which is called dex files for Delvik executables, and that's sort of an old name because the old VM was called Delvik. Nowadays, it's called ART for the Android runtime. Uh, so, anyway, the file the the, the file format. That an Android device can execute is called DEX files. And they sort of contain similar information as class files, uh, but there's a translation step going on there. So we need to take all of the class files for your app and we need to transform them into DEX files. That means that we need to change the representation of metadata for, uh, for classes, for, um, for methods, and for methods. There's code as well. And the code in a DEX file is not stack based, it's register based. And in a Java class file, it's stack based. So there's a transition there as well. We need to replace uh, Java instructions with sort of equivalent DEX instructions. And then there's a register allocation problem there as well, where we need to transform stack based code into register based code. So that's sort of the DEX. So that is basically a Tool to take your class files and transform it into a different language, which can be run uh, on, uh, on, on Android phones. Um, so that's one of them. Um, R8 is an application shrinker. So, as a part of R8, you actually have D8 because R8 takes your app with a specification of entry points into your app, and then it tries to find things that you don't need. Uh, and remove it from your app so that your app gets as small as possible. It also tries to optimize your app. So the um, the, the, the thing that makes that complicated is reflection, and that's why you need to specify what you're using in your app uh, because uh, Android apps are not like... Uh, a command line Java program where you have like a main method and everything reachable from there is reachable. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of reflection going on on Android. Uh, basically everything is reflection. So in an XML file in your Android app, you specify entry points to your app. Um, and those are then basically loaded by reflection. So the, uh, the the system will then say, hey, please find this class and start this activity. Um, So there are a bunch of tools that generate specifications of your entry points. And then as a user, the only thing you have to worry about is if you or one of your libraries use explicit reflection to look up classes or methods at runtime, then you need to specify that for the shrinker as well. And then the shrinker will take the specification of where are the entry points in your program, then it will find all of the code that's reachable from there. And if there's anything that's not reachable, it will throw it away. It sounds kind of weird to have a bunch of unreachable code in your app, right? But that's actually not that weird in the Java ecosystem because the way you typically build Java applications is you take all of your library dependencies. That's Those are Java files, which are basically SIPs of a bunch of class files containing everything in the library. So you'll basically just bundle all of these things together. So if you use a large collection library, but the only thing you use from there is a hash map, You'll still get sets and linked lists and all kinds of other things in your app unless there's some tool that removes it. And that tool is R8. Um, so, so Java apps are typically large because you just bundle all of the class files for your app and all of the libraries it depends on whether you actually use it or not. That's fine for servers on Android. It's not so great because Android can be fairly small devices.
1: So I'm, I'm not an Android developer. That wasn't apparent. I mean, it's even in my Twitter bio. Uh, but what isn't there another thing which is called ProGuard which does something similar? I, is it similar to R8 essentially?
3: Very much. Uh, we we actually built uh, R8 as a, 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 a as a ProGuard compatible solution for Android. R8 does a bunch of uh, of things. So, so first of all, we uh, we do what ProGuard does, uh, and and we, we we use the same specification language, Hardy. So so yes, very much so. It's it, it's the same kind of thing. Um, and then in addition to that, our target is uh, is Dex um, and as part of this, we also do um, uh, desugaring. So another thing that's interesting about the Android ecosystem is that right now. <laughs> Uh, the uh, the runtime uh, and the libraries that are on your phone is not updatable. Which means that whenever an Android developer writes an app, uh, you can only use features that were available five to seven years ago in the runtime that shipped on five to seven-year-old android devices and the uh, core library so like uh, uh, yeah core library that was shipped with uh, with that um, And that's of course not not great a lot has happened over the last 7 years in the uh, in the java ecosystem like there's java 8 where you could start to use uh, lambda expressions you've got streams in the core library and all of those language features come with new instructions in the java bytecode um, and uh, and and there's no equivalent in the Dex format for some of these, and even if there is, that has not been implemented uh, back in time, of course, because we can't ship a new VM to uh, older devices. Uh, so 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 that's where desugaring comes in. So uh, we allow Android developers to use these features, uh, in particular the language features, and then uh, and then uh, D8 and R8 will desugar that away. For R8, it will just be one invocation. It will do it all in, in one go. It will shrink your app. It will also de-sugar language features back in time. So basically replace the new features with old ones. Uh, for Lambdas, that means generate instead of generating uh, classes for Lambdas at runtime, it will just generate them at compile time um, because there's no mechanism for generating them at runtime in the Android runtime. So we'll generate them at compile time instead. Um, that was a very long answer to, is this sort of like ProGuard? And the answer is yes for the shrinking part and for the optimization part. It's very much uh, uh, like ProGuard. Uh, and then we've we've stuffed a bunch of other things in there. That means that we only have to launch one tool, which is good for build speed as well, uh, for, for doing a whole bunch of things that we need to do in the Android ecosystem.
1: So um, I, I've got a question, and, and we can come back to uh, these aspects as well uh, in a bit. but i got a question for you, Jeffrey, because uh, you have another role here, right? Which is uh, you are part of the Language Committee on the Kotlin Foundation.
2: It's one of the few times that I still get to do deep technical things. Uh, like I have a large org with many people to manage, uh, but the Language Committee is one of those uh, uh, guilty pleasures where I get to go really deep and, and look at the deep language features. So,
1: in essence, what you're saying is that, like many of us, your life is full of meetings otherwise,
2: right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: So, anyway, can you briefly tell people what this language committee is about?
2: Sure. So, as you remember, four years ago at Google I.O., uh, we announced that Kotlin must become an officially supported language for Android. Uh, and with that, we also launched the, the Kotlin Foundation that uh, uh, Google and their are both participating in. Uh, and. We want to make sure that the language evolves well. So what we did is we decided to have a single uh, language designer lead, uh, which at the time was Andrea, and now it's Roman uh, at JetBrains. Um, And they have final say over any language feature that gets added to the language. Um, This is nice because it makes sure that we can do rapid development um, and uh, we don't have to design by committee. Now, of course, uh, we also want to make sure that the language evolves well so that people can rely on language not to break them uh, when Uh, they try to upgrade their their compiler. And so to complement the single language designer, we added a committee which reviews only breaking changes and deprecations uh, to the language. Um, And so any new feature that doesn't break anything can be added pretty quickly, but anytime we have to break a language, uh, that has to be a bit more carefully done. And so that's where the language committee comes in. Uh, We have a set of guidelines on how to review any proposed breaking changes, uh, and so every couple months or so, uh, we get together virtually and we look at proposed breaking changes and then we have a discussion and decide if this is, a, a, number one, a breaking change that we're willing to make, and two, is the timeline correct, and three, do we have tooling to help people move
3: forward?
1: And and the reason I bring this up, because uh, I knew what you were going to answer kind of thing, okay, I'm cheating, I, I knew, uh, but... Because Mads, you were talking about, you know, when we're talking about the plugin and we're talking about the compiler and we're talking about, you know, let's just hope that things don't break and things like that. Does this fall into the scope of the language committee in terms of breaking changes or does it not?
2: No. So th- there's a couple of things that are considered for the, the language committee. So first of all, we, we look at changes in the language. Uh, second, we look at changes in the library that ship with the language, like the Kotlin standard library. Uh, but then there's a whole bunch of things that, that we consider out of scope. Uh, any additional uh, third-party library, uh, the compiler API itself, the build plugin API, as well as any experimental feature uh, are excluded for review from uh, the, the, the committee. Uh, and that's because like, things has to evolve. Right, The compiler, it, it, its internal structure, as Matt mentioned, um, you want to be able to innovate there. Uh, and I think it's OK to have some pain for people who build tooling, uh, as long as we don't break neck our, our users. Um, compilers are, are hard, Like they're complex systems. Uh, if you want to write a compiler plugin, you pretty much have to be a compiler engineer or become one. Um, like These are not for the faint of heart. Like, it, it's a, it's hard to, to build these, and, and that's why we have other layers. right? Like, if you want to do some code generation, you probably should be looking at the Kotlin Symbol Processing API instead of writing a full-fledged uh, compiler plugin. Um, do you actually
0: want to give people a, a a short rundown of of the the Kotlin symbol processing? Because I think that's a, a pretty recent change that that you folks were also involved in quite quite heavily.
2: So Kotlin is an awesome doing an awesome job integrating with the existing Java system, right? That's uh, one of the strengths. Uh, now, of course, the Java ecosystem comes with this thing called annotation processors, uh, which are kind of mini-plugins into the, the Java compiler, which, like just like Kotlin single-processing, have a limited scope. You cannot access full compiler API, but it gives you enough to uh, reason about symbols and then generate additional code. And it turns out that this is used quite a bit in Android to do metaprogramming. Um, and the problem with that is that, uh, in general, these are not fast, even in the Java ecosystem. But in Kotlin, they're way worse, because Kotlin has to do this trick where it takes the Kotlin code, generates Java stubs. That it can then feed to the Java compiler to run these Java annotation processors and then import the generated code back into Kotlin. So it was this multi phase step to, to bring compatibility with annotation processors, uh, which drastically slowed down uh, many builds. And, and because Android particularly uses these a lot, Android builds that you're using Kotlin and uh, annotation processors were slowing down quite a bit. And so, uh, with talking with, between Java and Google, we decided that it, it was time to come up with a, a native Kotlin solution to this. Uh, and we, we built Kotlin symbol processors, which very much in the spirit of annotation processors, but Kotlin has things like properties, delegates um, that uh, uh, suspend functions that, that are all in Java, and so modeling those in annotation processors was always hard. In, in Kotlin symbol processors, we actually have first-class uh, APIs to, to model these. And Then because we're operating on the Kotlin compiler, like we actually a Kotlin compiler plugin itself for Kotlin symbol processing. Uh, we can do things much more performant. We can completely dive into the incrementality of Kotlin. Um, we can do multiple runs in a safe way. Uh, and so it did provides a much richer and faster API. Uh, and then the other thing is, because we're working on Kotlin, written in Kotlin code, uh, we're also ready for doing Kotlin multi-platform. Uh, and that's something that we're working on adding right now. Uh, you want to be able to do civil processing. We are generating JavaScript or native code as well. And that was something that was never supported in Java annotation processors.
0: So this opens the door for for Kotlin specific annotations that that I can use no matter where I target or in in common Kotlin code as well. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So you can imagine that people use annotation processors for things like dependency injection or ORM. Uh, you can imagine that somebody writes a Kotlin symbol processor that provides you any of those features uh, across your your multi platform application. And
0: since we since we talked kind of about the the compilation pipeline beforehand, where do I have to imagine that the symbol processor um, kind of injects itself or hooks itself in?
2: Uh, yeah, so um, this uh, it, its a. So in, we have the current type of information in Gradle. And so it, it's just a Gradle plugin that will uh, insert itself into the pipeline. And it happens just before the Kotlin compiler is invoked. It uses the Kotlin compiler front end uh, to build up the, the semantic model and then run an annotation, uh, the symbol processor over it, and then generates code. And then that code is fed into the Gotham compiler.
0: So, Mats, you uh, said beforehand that there were actually some other projects that maybe we could get into at a bit of a later point. Maybe this is, this is the later point. You want to let us know what you have in store?
3: Absolutely. One, one, of the, one of the projects that I actually wanted to talk about was KSP. So you already brought that up, which is great. The, the other one that we haven't talked about though is the is is the new compiler frontend that's coming. So we talked about the backend and how that was important for compose, but we didn't talk so much about the backend and why sorry the frontend, uh, and why it's important that we get a new one. Um, and it's it's very important for build speed. Uh, so one of the top complaints that that we get from Android developers. And I think if you build tools for developers in general, not just Android developers, probably one of the main concerns that you'll have anyway, and that's compile time. Uh, I think all developers have uh, struggled a little bit with the edit, compile, deploy cycle uh, and how long that takes in in, in a lot of, uh, of settings. And Kotlin is definitely not an exception. It's not uh, a secret that the current Kotlin compiler is not particularly fast. Um, so uh, at JetBrains, they've started a project to revamp the front-end uh, and it's showing quite uh, massive speed-ups. Uh, so on the order of a f- 4 to 5x uh, uh, increase in front-end speed. Uh, so basically cutting your, your, your time down to 20% in the front-end of what it used to be, uh, which is pretty amazing. And that is obviously going to translate into some really good improvements for end-users on some of the benchmarks that we're tracking uh, end-to-end compilation, including front-end and uh, back-end. It's twice as fast uh, as it is with the current compiler. Um, And that's pretty neat. Uh, So that's definitely something we we want. Uh, And again, we're sort of following the the, the tactics that we did with the the back-end as well. If this is something that we want. Then we should invest some resources in it and uh, and help uh, make sure that we get there as fast as we possibly can because this would be great for the uh, for the Android ecosystem and it would be great for some of the tools that we are building as well. Um, so for Android Studio, for instance, we're building Apply Changes, which is um, a way to get your. Um, code onto an android device as fast as possible and of course you need to build your actual code before you can ship it to the device so any compiler in the system is sort of on the critical path for that including the kotlin compiler so we're engaging in uh, in that project as well so one of the things that we've been working on there is uh, based on our experience with the backend ir we are uh, we engage in Translating from the front end IR to the backend IR. So basically, once the front end is done, it has its own front end representation of the code, and now we need to translate that into the backend representation so that the backend can take over and generate uh, Java byte code and uh, class files. Um, so that was sort of the starting point. Um, the uh, the recently we've gotten into to helping out with the with the flip side of the story, basically. So so. Uh, uh, there are a couple of things right for a, a compiler it should accept valid programs and it should generate working code from it so that was sort of where we started out with this translation from front end ir to back end ir but the flip side of that is it should also reject invalid programs with good diagnostics and and showing you the line and like the exact point where that where that error is so that you as the developer can fix it and that's also driven uh, by the front-end. Uh, and there are these things called diagnostics, which are used both in a standalone compiler to give you errors and like print like uh, there was this line right here. You had an error, but it's also used in the editor. Uh, so used in IntelliJ and in Android Studio uh, to pinpoint problems. Um, so we've engaged on that as well. Uh, so make sure that the, f- the new front-end will generate diagnostics in the same way that the old one did, But of course, it has to be re-implemented when it's a new frontend. Similarly, on top of those diagnostics, uh, the IDE, both IntelliJ and Android Studio have quick fixes. So if you see some of these errors, some of them are fairly easy to fix. Uh, So the editor can suggest like, hey, uh, this doesn't look right. Did you mean to do this instead? Uh, And and those are called quick fixes. Um, And our team is engaging on on implementing them, them as well.
0: So from, a, from the t- tooling perspective, um, when, you, when you say that the front-end IR is, is much faster, and, and you, you said I think before and you said that the front-end part is the part that kind of continuously runs as well when you, when you write code, uh, does that mean that people can also expect, I don't know, even more snappier um, diagnostics when they make mistakes, completions, this kind of stuff?
3: Oh, I hope so. <laughs> that, that That is definitely one of the goals. And
2: not, not just not just agnostics, also out of completion, right? That, that's completely driven off the front end too.
3: Exactly. It should hopefully be a good improvement in, in terms of just using the editor on large Kotlin projects uh, since the front end is significantly faster. Uh, that should translate into significantly faster uh, things in your editor as well.
0: And the quick fixes that you mentioned, they also operate on this on this front-end intermediate
2: representation?
3: Yeah, well, they, 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 they operate on... I think basically they go back to PSI, though, because they're integrated in your, uh, in your editor. So at the end of the day, what they need to change is your source code. Um, so they, they get the errors from the front-end IR infrastructure and they can look at that right, and figure out what the error is and what a correct fix might be. And then the actual fix will have to then also be a fix to the actual source code that is currently in your editor. Uh, so the answer is 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 yes and no. The quick fix looks at the front-end IR to figure out what's wrong and what to do about it. But then afterwards, it does need to go to the source representation and change the source code uh, to uh, to do the actual quick fix.
1: Mads, you mentioned PSI. Maybe you want to
3: clarify what that is, folks. Not- yeah. Um, very very earlier in, in the in the podcast, I, I I told you that the old backend has the had this split between a pure source representation and some semantic information. The pure source representation that's called PSI. I can't even remember what it is. Program source information, probably. Structure interface. Structure interface.
1: The layer that IntelliJ basically has, right? You're referring to, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, and that's used for any language that integrates into IntelliJ Java and other languages, C So,
1: talking about the team, uh, or you know, talking about the team, <laughs> were well, we talking about the team? We weren't talking about the team, but hey, you know, here's, here's a nice segue. About talking about, oh my God, Jeffrey, is that a is that a ketchup all in your background? Like, talk about segues. Is that calling ketchup?
2: It is. Uh, so I, I ordered a whole bunch of them. I, I gave them to the whole team here in, uh, in Bellevue.
1: Nice. So and and thank you for not talking about the team because <laughs> <laughs> you brought up the team. Uh, so it'd be beautiful. It just worked out great. Uh, so talking about the team, how do you actually collaborate with the Kotlin team? I mean, is it just normally through PRs on on GitHub, or do you have more uh, closer relationship? Do you have meetings? How does that work?
2: Um, both JetBrains and Google are distributed, right? So uh, I think JetBrains has people working on Kotlin compiler in St. Petersburg and elsewhere in Europe. And then uh, we are split, the compiler team, and, and Google split between uh, Denmark, where our math is, and here in uh, Seattle area, where, where I am. And uh, So we have people contributing from both locations. Uh, so many different time zones to cover. Uh, so there's a lot of asynchronous communication, uh, PRs. Uh, we have a Slack channel. Uh, we have... Uh, I think biweekly meetings as well between the two different teams at the different companies, uh, and then lots of ad hoc uh, email and other communication as well. Uh, before the pandemic, we would try to sync up around Kotlin conferences and Google I.O.
3: as well, of course. We missed those. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: I I saw Hardy tweeted recently that he doesn't think people are, are going to go back to in-person events. I think that may have been sarcasm, but...
1: Yeah, and everyone's like, no, 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 I'm dying to go back. I'm like, yes. up <laughs> It's of cool, sarcasm.
0: So um, let me let me ask maybe maybe one more question. I, I assume that you 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 work a lot with with code that Googlers have written. You you see a lot of code that maybe JetBrains have written. Uh, do you kind of notice uh, uh, any kind of difference in style or or approach in 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 solutions between the kind of the the two cultures?
3: I I think to be honest, on the compiler front, we we try to blend in because if you want to contribute to a project and and you have the attitude that, hey, let me use a different style than everyone else in this project, that's not going to end well for you. I, I, I think we largely agree with the style, though, so I don't think there are any big discrepancies in in what we would normally do. Uh, but of course, we, we we try to not deviate from the style in which the compiler is written, because after all, we want to... Like we do good work that ends up being accepted, and and not get drowned in sort of uh, nitpicky comments in the form of "Could you put the brace somewhere else?" Uh, that's that's not very productive. So I think we we, we try to uh, to blend in and have basically just uh, like looked at the JetBrains source base and try to follow that uh, sort of uh, style for our own contributions. Worth mentioning that I think
2: we are more like a, a, a single team now. Like. Like, we, we uh, of course, send lots of pull requests to JetBrains and, like, have people on JetBrains side review them. But it's also now that we're starting to see that, like, when JetBrains folks make a change in some area that, like, people on the Google side are more familiar that we're getting uh, asked to do code reviews from, from the JetBrains team as well. Um, so you're starting to see that we're becoming more a coherent team versus, like, oh, it's us versus them.
1: Yeah. It, it's, it's funny, that you mentioned code style because, again, <laughs> I was, like, I was trying to comply comply with the code style. And I thought to myself, how many minutes of my life have I wasted in trying to do this? Uh, But anyway, cool, well, um, we're out of time. Well, we're out of time, we're like way over time. But as I said, when we have awesome people on, we have all the time in the world. This is the beauty about doing a podcast that you say is kind of 30 minutes long because it could be anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour. Um, It just always works. Uh, Thank you for coming on to both of you, uh, taking the time. And, uh, yeah, we'll uh, hope to get you on for some other topics and maybe dive dive deeper into KSP next time.
0: Thank you so much for these in-depth answers. That was really insightful, very exciting.
3: (laughs) Awesome. Thanks for having us.
2: That's maybe Matt's going to be. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that was some exciting
0: stuff, but uh, it's actually time for your favorite part now, Hardy, right?
1: Yes, it is. Uh, oh, yes, it's time to go gardening. Oh, yeah, yeah, I enjoy gardening. It's five o'clock at Central European Time, soon to be Central Eastern Europe. No, not Central Eastern Europe. <laughs> Central European Summer Time. And uh, but make sure that you come back next time. Ring that bell. Oh, and hit that subscribe. subscribe to, button. Look, I got a real bell. I got a real it's bell. It's amazing. And uh, <laughs> make sure that you hit the subscribe button and the yeah. likes. You know, the other day I saw some some thumbs down. What?
0: I know. Don't I know. don't don't give give. Okay, give give thumbs up as well if you like this episode. Yes.
1: No thumbs down. More you engagement. Know, thumbs down is so negative. It's so. Put, a, negative.
0: put an emoji in the comments, but only a happy one.
1: We need constructive criticism, not thumbs down. Yeah. Right. See you next time.
0: See ya.